RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Today's episode is sponsored by Optimum Nutrition. To get a 40% discount across their entire batch-tested range, use the code RENEGADE40 at www.onacademy.co.uk forward slash elite portal. And of course, members of the Rugby Renegade online subscription program get an exclusive 50% discount plus free access to the Optimum Nutrition online nutrition course. Yes, we are back for episode 69 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain, and today I interview Rocky Snyder, author of Return to Centre, and a very experienced um, strength and conditioning performance coach over in the States. Uh, and it's a, a real interesting, eye-opening podcast, um, getting to like his philosophy and, and how he approaches things, maybe kind of a bit of a an outside perspective outside the box perspective but you know really a good one for you to kind of look at and challenge your own your own beliefs and, and how you do things uh, it ties in a lot with the uh, anatomy and motion stuff um and uh, stuff i've been looking into recently around the foot and ankle and things like that and how injuries can then create compensation so uh, tons of great information here from rocky so give it a listen and let us know what you think Hi Rocky, welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. It's great to have you on. Let's start by you telling us a little bit about your background, how you got into strength and conditioning, and who you've worked with. Uh, Jamie, thanks. Uh, well, I've been in Santa Cruz, California now for, since the early 90s. I became affiliated with the National Strength and Conditioning Association by being certified as a strength conditioning specialist. That was back in 93. So for Oh, I can't believe it, but getting on close to 30 years now, I've been a strength conditioning coach and personal trainer on the central coast of California. And in the town in which I'm located, it's very well known for surfing and a mountain biking mecca. So I don't see a lot of mainstream athletes. And rugby is a very popular growing sport in California. And of course, in, in the nation, we got the sevens tournament and all that. But uh, we, I just have a few friends that are rugby players that I've trained. Really, I get a few Olympians from time to time. Some of the major sports athletes will come in, but a lot of the folks that I see are actually more recreational athletes and your general population. But the type of work that we do here is quite, well, I would say unique in the way in which we condition the body so that a lot of people that have chronic or acute pain are often sent our way because of the way in which we develop programs and increase the ability of the body to move with more efficiency, less compensation, reducing pain, and so on. So I've been doing that with a studio here, my own studio since 96. So we're going on, I guess, our 25th year of doing it. And along the lines, I've made a lot of growth. I've made a lot of mistakes and learned a tremendous amount over the course of time with many mentors. And of course, now with internet i say now it's been 15 years since we've really or 20 years we've had that mainstream that there's just so much information at your fingertips you just have to filter through what is accurate and what isn't yeah that's cool and we, we kind of spoke off air and i'm going to start with a question i usually kind of leave till the middle of the podcast with, with other guests and but i think it'll it'll set us on a good kind of journey through through the podcast and and get right into some, something you're working on a lot of the moment uh, and it's, it's what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning obviously you can apply it to athletes in general 
Yeah, I, yeah, I would. And I wouldn't necessarily blame the athletes so much as the ones that are developing the programs for them, unless they are developing the, the strength conditioning programs themselves. The, the issue here and for several decades now is that most strength conditioning programs are fundamentally founded on three competitions, meaning uh, we have bodybuilding, which is all about the aesthetic viewpoint of muscles and can we hypertrophy them? Can we grow them in such a size that you are going to be able to stand on a stage in a Speedo bikini with, with oiled skin and tanned up uh, texture and, and, and compete by posing? Uh, that's what we, where we got a lot of our exercises from, whether it be bicep curls, leg extensions, or any other kind of isolated exercises. And then we have powerlifting, which at one point in time was called odd lifting, and, and we see that in world's greatest, uh, world's strongman competitions and whatnot, but it filtered down to the squat, the deadlift, and the bench press. And so we find those competition lifts in, in many strength conditioning programs, as well as the Olympic-style weightlifting, which is much more explosive in nature. And it, we're trying to harness the power of the human body by taking immense weights and thrusting it overhead or to shoulder height and so on. That is what the majority of programs have been developed from. And, and unfortunately, it leaves a lot out of the equation, such as basically how does a human body move through space? There's so many things that have to occur in just the actual gait cycle of human movement that we're not focusing on. And if you're a rugby player, you really need to know how to move across the pitch. You need to have power, change in direction, and so on. And if you're not focusing a conditioning program on actually locomotion of the human body and the joint relationships that each joint has with one another, then how are you really going to train and truly condition the body to be ready to, to change directions to decelerate to accelerate and i believe that the conditioning programs that we have been creating for several decades now are leading to a lot of non-contact sports injuries whether it's an acl tear a high hamstring pull an achilles tendon rupture uh, also we see it in in other forms such as low back injuries shoulder impingements a plantar fasciitis, shin splints, these are all ways in which the body is being asked to move in a non-efficient manner, where it could be moving more efficiently without the strains or the, the slings and arrows of this outrageous fortune, so to speak. Yeah, it's definitely something I've seen. It's a, a trend, I guess, because when strength and conditioning was early, early stages in sports, I guess they they looked at your power lifters and your um, Olympic weightlifters and and I guess that was better than doing nothing but some people have kind of continued on just adding a powerlifting or weightlifting program to a sports program and think that's enough but it, it's it's not enough it's got to be adjusted um, for the sport and for the individuals you say so let's um, let's talk a bit about your book return to center what's the sort of premise of that and how you approach working with your athletes well, first, what you just said was very well said. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, there needs to be an adaptation and an increase in, in knowledge and, and a willingness to change the, the information that we've learned from the past. So with Return to Center, the, the premise is, is trying to utilize conditioning routines along the same lines 
as what you might get from seeing a chiropractor, an acupuncturist, a manual therapist of massage, even the martial arts of the Eastern world. And all of these, or even in the Western world, we could look at Feldenkrais or somatics work. All of these approaches have the fundamental goal of restoring the body more into a balanced, aligned, centrated place. And when the body goes closer toward that central place, we have better muscular balance, which allows joint spacing to be at that optimal place where there's not impingement or compression. It doesn't really garner inflammation in areas. It actually reduces. Organ function improves. Central nervous system, the regulation or up up information into the brain and, and interpretation and the, the reply through the body is more efficient. Everything is basically upgraded the closer we get to a central place. And with these previous conditioning programs, we are really concerned about force production and aesthetics. Unfortunately, what often is occurring is through that repetitive nature of certain movements, it actually draws the body out of the aligned place, away from center, causing even more compensation. And regardless if you're a top world-class athlete or a grandparent, the further you get away from center, the less efficient, the more you have to compensate. And the top level athletes are probably the best at compensating to get around their, their weaknesses, their faults, their, their lack of movement in certain areas. So the book, it is an, an attempt to offer an alternative to the way in which we're viewing strength conditioning and to give means in which to determine what movements, what drills are proper for any individual. So everyone has lived a unique existence. No two people, even identical twins, have not lived identical lives. So the way in which a body moves is going to be basically determined by previous experiences, whether it's an injury, a surgery, or, or whatever the case may be, the body is constantly adapting and trying to do the best it can with what it has. But there's no magic reset button after any injuries occurred or any surgery. We don't just magically go back to a, an aligned, centrated place. It's something that we have to reinforce and re-educate back within our system. And even the physiotherapists, physical therapists, they have certain approaches, but most do not truly take them back to a fully rehabilitated standpoint, and which unfortunately will potentially lead to continued injuries, either in the same injury spot or maybe somewhere else. Yeah, and I think we often, we often say, you know, don't, don't load dysfunction. But I think probably a, a lot of the issue in the industry is we don't know a good way to assess, um, assess what, in, in, in your terminology, what is center or good posture, for example. So how, yeah. what, what's your sort of process for assessing that? Well, there's three ways that we kind of look at where the body is uh, in terms of posture, where the mass of the body is being managed. Ideally, if you have proper alignment, your center of mass, the average mass of the body should basically be halfway between both feet and more or less halfway between the forefeet and the rear feet. So they hover right in between. And the further away that ideal, we get away from that ideal spot, 
uh, the more we find that the posture and, and mechanics become compromised. So we can do a very simple assessment and have, you have a person stand and bare feet and get a sense of where their body weight is descending down into their feet. If there's more weight into the heel of one foot and maybe there's more weight in the forefoot of the opposite, that gives us an understanding of what the joints are most likely doing. Now, of course, it, every rule has a break in it. There, there's no perfect process. So, we'll, But we can get an understanding that if weight is shifted here or there, then most likely we're going to see this occurring at the knee, that occurring at the hip and pelvis. The spine's most likely going to be doing that. So we can have a starting point. And that's just a quick and simple way to do it. Another way is just to do either a self-assessment or have somebody assess your posture. Where are your shoulders in relation to your hips? Where is your skull in relation to your spine, your knees, your feet? Where does everything line up in three-dimensional space? And by knowing that, there's a starting point right there that we can start to work on movements and mechanics that can bring the body back into alignment while at the same time strengthening conditioning. So I'm not getting away from actually conditioning the athlete. We're just taking a different approach that instead of just doing heavy lifts or kettlebell swings or battle rope until the arms wear down, we're actually taking a hopefully a more practical approach at, okay, let's see if you can load these patterns properly, fire up the proper mechanics so that when you go and move, you're actually moving with more power and strength, even though we may not have loaded you to your 90% of your one repetition maximum or whatever equation you want to use. The third way in which we could assess is using the understanding of gait the gait cycle and what the joints of the body must do through the gait cycle and see if you can facilitate those movements, such as looking at the pelvis. Can your pelvis evenly tilt forward and backwards or is there a difference in those movements? Can the pelvis glide sideways left to right or is there a difference between left and right? Can it tilt sideways, laterally tilt, or what we might consider hiking one hip up and dropping the other? Can you do that evenly on both sides? And, and finally, can the pelvis rotate to the left and to the right in an even manner, or is there a subtle difference between the two? As soon as you notice these subtleties of movement, it's really going to tell you a lot about what the soft tissue, the muscles are, are having to go through. If you struggle to go through one movement, then what does that tell you about the muscles that should be lengthening to allow that to occur? Or on the other hand, what does it tell you about the muscles that should be shortening to allow that movement to occur? I think in our way of looking at strength conditioning, we are so muscle centric. We're so focused on the soft tissue that very few of us are actually looking at what the joints or the bones are doing. And all the tissue attaches to our skeletal frame, at least the ones that we need for locomotion. So if we were more focused on how the joints and the bones move, it would give us a much more comprehensive understanding of what the muscles are having to go through. So if we can take that and have a little shift in our thought process, I think we'll go a long way with it. Yeah, and I guess that leads to the, the next question. Where do you start trying to correct, um, correct their posture or you know, their alignment and get them to center? What, what's the kind of starting point and, and where do you go from there? Wow, really great. I, and this brings up also just the concept of correction. Now, where the brain is always adapting in, in the most efficient way it can to get through our day, to get through the next step. And for instance, if you were to have an inversion sprain on the pitch, 
you're instantly going to subconsciously figure out the next best way to move. So that means that the brain is constantly adapting to whatever it is receiving in terms of stimuli. And it's going to not expend excess energy in getting around that issue. It's going to do it in the most efficient way. And therefore, just the word dysfunction is something that we kind of come up in conflict with because I don't believe that there, that word should actually be using be used in conversation here. It's, it's just what level of function are you at? Can we give you a higher level of function? Uh, dysfunction would be that you can't move at all. Nothing is working. So when where to start with this would just be to one, find out where a person is, bring some awareness in their movement. And then by knowing where they are missing certain mechanics, can we feed that back into their system and most likely we can use the conventional exercises we're already familiar with, whether it be a form of a deadlift or a step up or a pressing or a pulling action. We can still use these mechanics that we're so familiar with, but we're just going to use them in a way that incorporate a little bit more uh, access to areas or movements that they, for whatever reason, aren't able to access at that point in time. And then we can use Honestly, the, we can use the autonomic nervous system, just like we use heart rate monitors to determine our cardiovascular intensity level. We also have other areas of the autonomic nervous system that will regulate joint range of motion or mobility or muscles allowing that action to occur. So you could say, I guess, flexibility. It also regulates balance. It regulates our visual field and our peripheral vision. So when the body is encountering something that is stressing it and creating an, a heightened sympathetic response, we're gonna see a reduction in balance, a reduction in range of motion, a reduction in force production, a reduction in the peripheral field. So you can actually use these as assessment tools, aside from just simply having the person move around and seeing how they feel after each of these movements, you could have them simply balance on one leg. Did your balance improve or did it degrade after doing that particular movement? Because now you're actually getting real input, real feedback from your whole system in how your brain is responding. Rather than just using a formula that somebody in a clinical setting started to come up with, saw some benefits, and now we're all doing that. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think you're also in terms of dealing with people and clients, they, they love that objective uh, feedback don't then seeing that data is improving and stuff like that so that's a, a good point honestly it almost feels like magic and and we have to debunk that and say no it's really science it's motor neurology your brain is responding to any stimuli at any given time so depending upon what we're going to feed it it's going to give us an outcome that's either desirable or not desirable so it's it's quite binary in a way and and when they do a movement and then suddenly they're able to say touch their toes for the first time in a while and you haven't done any flexibility work with them you just got their ankle to move in a certain way that they they haven't moved it and the, the brain just responds by allowing greater movements to occur through the chain it, it's just it's remarkable and of course it happens at the speed of how nerves are sent to the brain and respond so we're not talking weeks and weeks of conditioning to get these outcomes it's actually quite immediate which is something that is is quite remarkable also yeah, I'm, I'm glad you used the, the example of, of someone being able to touch their toes and, and having not done flexibility work with them. Um, what, what, let's talk more about your kind of philosophy on, you know, flexibility or mobility as, as people talk about more nowadays. And is it, is there 
any necessity for it or have you found that just people finding center they'll get that range of motion that mobility back well as the body gets back to a more balanced place where the the posture becomes more aligned therefore the brain is saying now we're in a more efficient place in which to move we can allow greater movement to occur so we can get back there through doing some flexibility work and there's many ways in which you can approach that dynamic static stretching pnf there's a whole array of approaches that people have come up with to truly to truly elongate a muscle there is another element we must consider when say lengthening a muscle that is shortened are you providing information into the system so that the system understands what it should do with that muscle that's lengthened and not simply stretching it for the sake of stretching because if that is what your goal is is just stretching a muscle that is short then you may actually be doing a disservice to the person that you're working with because it could be that that muscle is in a shortened state because it's taking on a role that somewhere else is not taking on and if you take away that ounce of stability or, or whatever that reason is for that muscle being shortened, and you don't feed information into the system on how to properly move and excite the other areas that are not doing their share, then now you're just taking the only ounce of stability, their only strategy for maintaining some semblance of good movement away. And now you are basically making them quite vulnerable at a higher chance of injury. So stretching for the sake of stretching is not something that I really believe in, but actually feeding purpose into a muscle, into the proper way in which it should lengthen and shorten, feeding it into the system is, is really the key here. Because really what we're talking about is can we improve an individual's ability to move with efficiency, with balance, coordination, dynamic stability, and, and explosiveness when it needs to. And in order to do that, it doesn't just simply involve taking a tight hamstring and stretching the heck out of it, because that hamstring may be in that position for a reason that you don't know. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, we're always told that it's the nervous system that dictates kind of range of motion and flexibility, not, not just the muscle uh, in that's in its own sense on its own um so it, it makes sense that if you actually get joints in the right positions and the the brain and nervous system realizing how they function properly then yeah, that and, range of motion will increase or exactly and then we also when if we want to really delve into stretching a little bit there's several stretches out there that we're doing in, in a typical gym routine and you'll see it all the time where we're told to stretch in a certain way but at no point in time as through at least through the gait cycle the most common way of of ambulation at no point in time will that muscle behave in that fashion so now you're doing a stretch for the sake of taking two ends of that muscle and driving them away from each other in a certain manner that that is a behavior that never occurs and i'll give you an example of that uh, speaking of hamstrings if we look at how somebody runs or walks, as the leg swings forward, the knee extends, and the weight or mass of that swinging pendulum-like leg swinging forward is going to encourage the pelvis to posteriorly tilt, meaning the front of the pelvis is going to rise up and the tailbone is going to lower down. That is what happens with leg swing. 
That means that the pelvis tilting downward in the back while the knee extends is how the hamstring muscles lengthen. The both ends are moving in the same direction, only one's moving faster than the other. And they're creating that length to help allow the, the leg to slow down to get ready for impact on the ground. But how is it that we're often taught to stretch out the hamstring? Well, extend your leg forward, point your foot to the ceiling, straighten out your knee, and now tilt the pelvis forward. And that forward tilting the pelvis pulls the hamstring at the ischial tuberosity, at the sit bones, at the base of the bottom, and pulls it backwards rather than how it should move and move forward. So what occurs there is this burning, stretching sensation of the hamstring muscle. And because people are feeling that, they feel like I must be doing it the way that you want me to. And in truth, what you're really doing is you're, you're doing something remarkably uh, unnatural to that hamstring muscle. You're forcing the higher portion of the hamstring below the buttocks to pull away rather than to move forward. And this may be why we see a lot of high hamstring pulls is because the conditioning approach that we're doing is actually not considering how the human body moves. And we gotta look at how the bones move, how the joints, how do we move through space so that we can replicate that to the best of our ability in a conditioning facility. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting stuff. And what um, what role does the the foot play in this? I know there's talk about joints and and things like that, and and um, range of motion. If if you've got things right in the foot, correct me if I'm wrong, does that improve stuff higher up the chain? Well, considering it's the only part of your body that contacts the planet on a regular basis, there are 26 bones and 33 joints within a single foot and they fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And at one split second, they are meant to lock together and become rigid to propel you off planet earth. While in another split second, they're meant to unlock and create space amongst them as you land back on the planet. And there's a certain pattern that must occur for efficient movement to make the ankle encouraged to do what it needs to do, the knee to do what it needs to do. It sets up, therefore, the hip, the spine, all the way through the body. The foot is one of the most essential parts. But then again, I don't want to take the foot away from the whole integrative form of the body because everywhere in the body must have a particular role to play when we run down the field or when we stop. Everything must be working in its proper way. However, if the first moment of contact is thrown off by a foot shape that isn't ideal, by plantar tissue that has been stressed and long and the foot is now flattened more than, than it should be, or the arches are rigid and don't drop down in the way they should, these are all going to set up a huge chain reaction of compensation all the way up the chain and out through the rest of the body. So yes, the foot plays an essential, integral, and, and critical part. And so we definitely want to look at that. But historically, the foot has just been this non-essential flap of skin that just keeps going along and that no one really pays that much attention to. We're more concerned with the valgus position of the knee or how much the glute medius is not firing to produce hip stability. What if the foot was creating all of those just simply because of the fundamental shape that has taken up over time? 
I mean, that is the foundation from which the rest of the body is predicated on. So if the shape of the foot is not ideal, what happens to the ankle? And therefore, what happens to the knee? Does that throw the, the muscle activation surrounding the pelvis, all 57 muscles askew? So now that area is compensating, and then you go to somebody that looks at the hips and says, oh yeah, the, the piriformis, I see that. We've got to stretch that piriformis out. And we start hunting down a specific muscle, thinking that's gonna solve all the world's problems when we have to look back at the entire body and, and how it integrates it and relates to one another. So long-winded answer for your question, but yeah, the foot is essential. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've recently did a podcast with, with Ben Patrick, the, the knees over toes guards, and if you're aware of him, and um, he said a lot of the work he does with his clients is, is based on foot and, and ankle, um, and, and not just because of its importance, but because all they seem to train in their, their own programs in, in sports, they just spend so much time on the hips and knees they don't actually work on on those like you said which has all those joints um is the first thing to to make contact with the floor it's it's kind of crucial um so he puts all his time on that and then things up the chain seem to seem to improve so it's um, incredible yeah i've i've been studying with a, a fellow londoner of yours gary ward who's the author of what the foot and, and has developed an educational workshop called anatomy and motion which i highly recommend to any strength conditioning coach physical therapist chiropractor manual therapist it's a game changer and he has mapped out what every joint articulation in the body should do through three-dimensional space through the entire gait cycle. And that is what he teaches. It's a tremendous amount of information. But once you can bring it into your field and really, truly just ingest all that information, it, it changes the way you look at the body. I'll give you an example when it comes to the foot, though, Jamie, is that I had a hairstylist come in from a local salon uh, about a year ago or so, and she had complained that her, she could not lift her right arm above shoulder height. She had seen a physiotherapist and was able to get it to that range of motion, but beyond that was just just an unbelievable pain. And she was not able to see her clients. And without seeing her clients, of course, she was out of a job. So she was just beside herself. And we sat down for about 20 minutes, I think it was. And I just asked her what was going on aside from the shoulder. Tell me a little bit about your history of any injuries or surgeries and so on. And she had given me a list of things, including uh, knee surgery, a hysterectomy, a, a broken toe, a big toe on her left foot. And, and she had surgery that placed pins in the foot. And somewhere along the way after the surgery occurred, she had sustained a fall that had dislodged the pins through the sole of her foot and had to have them removed. And so on and so on. So I just curious about that foot and just wanted to see how she moved, where her pressure was in her feet, standing there and so on. What we determined was she was not able to get any weight into the front of that left foot. And in order for the shoulder to raise up, that would be one of those things that was pretty much required because as you put your weight onto that left foot, your right arm swings forward. So there's this 
relationship, a neurological relationship for the last two million years that has been really hardwired into our system that when one joint moves, another joint should do something specific to that. And since we've been on two feet for two million years, that is something that is just so ingrained in us that we, if one isn't happening, then maybe something else isn't happening. So long story short, we put some pressure into the front of that foot. We got her to load into it pain-free. There was no pain there. It was just a residue of what she had encountered so many years before that she had just been reinforcing the fact that she didn't want to get onto the, the front of her left foot. But we encouraged her to get onto it and started to build up the missing movements in her frame. And in a matter of minutes, we just did that. And I asked her, asked her to check back in with her shoulder. And sure enough, she was able to raise it completely over her head pain-free. She could reach back behind her, which is something she hadn't done in over a year without pain. And she was just, her jaw dropped to the floor and said that, how, how does that work? And, you know, well, I think the listening audience knows a little bit more. I don't have to go into depth as to how that works. But by having that foot respond properly, allowed, like you said, further up the chain to work better as well. So it's, it's not a symptom-based approach that we're so accustomed to. When you go see a physio for a knee issue or a low back issue, the first thing they do is look at the, the symptomatic site, which is fine, but they better pan back in, in their view of you and look at the rest of the body and see, well, maybe the hips are not in the proper position to allow that knee to do what it needs to do. Maybe the foot isn't acting in such a way to allow the knee to perform what it needs to do. And maybe somewhere else is creating the pain that they're experiencing at that particular site. Yeah, that's good advice. I think, I think like you say, if we tend to tend to look at one, if there's an issue at the one joint, we kind of focus on that. I think maybe more, you know, we respond a bit better and say, if there's a knee injury, we'll, we'll consider the ankle and the hip kind of the, the idea that there's something wrong above or below but i think yeah it's 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 more than that as well you've got to got to go into a bit more depth into it and try and figure out what is causing that that not i'm not gonna say dysfunction you said it shouldn't use uh, misfunction we'll use that or coin a new term um yeah so it's it's a bit more of a puzzle and and try and figure out how to do it and i guess that leads me to my next question which is a a, a a question we use every every time on the podcast with the guests and it's um, what advice would you give to upcoming strength coaches and, and I guess in terms of in terms of learning more about this what what would you recommend and how to kind of approach things I would definitely recommend getting outside of the field and exploring education outside of the industry because if you just stay within the industry you're limiting your understanding of how the body is and, and how programs should be designed and you're simply following in the footsteps of, of some giants. It's wonderful to stand on the shoulders of giants, but um, if we don't have the proper information, then we're just gonna repeat the errors of the past. So we need to think outside of that and, and really explore how the body truly moves. Also, I would say that hey, you need to question yourself on a regular basis. There needs to be a reason for every movement that you give your athletes or your clients. If that reason is just to simply get bigger arms, if that's the client's goal, then go at it. But it shouldn't be the same program for everyone you see. Uh, hopefully your goal is to improve their performance. And that means that you need to know how they're not performing well. And can you do something to improve on the areas that, that are weak, so to speak? Most of us will go to a workout facility 
and we'll focus on our strengths because that's what's stimulated more through the brain. Uh, the places that we don't move well don't get the stimulation. So we don't really know that they're even there because it's not that we're ignoring it. We're not just, we're just not getting stimuli. So think in terms of that, find the dark zones in which people do not travel and see if you can come up with movements that will incorporate a, a reawakening into those areas and then watch how the body responds and always assess. In fact, every movement that you're giving someone should be a true assessment of what they can do. And then you build upon each assessment to get you to a, a further and further point of optimal performance. Yeah, definitely. I've always kind of encouraged, um, you know, looking outside the box, uh, the sort of strength conditioning industry is kind of saturated with very similar thinkers of, you know, that's what happens. People who, you know, agree with each other kind of, you know, come together and, and push this sort of one agenda and with, with no kind of malice behind it. It's just kind of how people work, I guess. Um, but if you keep going to the same conferences, you hear, hear the same thing. So it's, it's worth going out there and, and, and looking at other other industries and, and trying to figure out stuff that you can yeah. bring that's not the the usual stuff and, and also in terms of um how um you talk about how the how the body moves we're kind of almost educated to think of it as you know you've got um one movement it's concentric and then eccentric but if you actually look at the individual muscles um in a squat you know there's all different functions all the way through that movement and, and that's got to be taken into consideration as well yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, when it comes to the industry, you were mentioning uh, uh, thinking outside the box, everyone enjoys a pat on the back and encouragement. And when you have all these people with similar mindsets and approaches, uh, it's, it's very easy to build up each other, but it, you definitely need to shake the tree from time to time and, and get outside of that circle of, of comrades and, and look elsewhere because you're, you need to take a more broad spectrum of the world around you, I guess. I and mean, when it comes to the squat, yeah, as I said earlier, we have 57 muscles surrounding the pelvis, 45 of which go down and attach to the legs in some form, and the other 12 go up toward the spine, rib cage, and arms. And so when you're doing a squat, to try and home in on a particular muscle and, and not necessarily negate, but perhaps ignore the other 56 muscles, it seems unfair. But what if you were to look at how the body, how the joints were moving, if you see that the pelvis is not tilting the proper way or that it's swaying toward one side or there's some rotation, what if you were to just clean up those movements, what would happen to the, the surrounding tissue? And that's kind of the approach that I'm encouraging people to take is not think so much about what muscle is doing what, Let's just look at the bones because the bones will help govern what the muscles have to do. So it's a, it's a different way of, of seeing movement. But once you do, it's, it's actually quite freeing. It's, it's not so heavy. You're, you're not so consumed with the, the transverse abdominis, the multifidus, the, the obdurator or, or piriformis or, or glute medius. You're not getting caught up in that trap of trying to follow the rabbit down the hole and get lost in the warren. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we've obviously spoken about, about your book and you mentioned Anatomy and Motion. Are there any other books or resources you'd recommend for people to learn more? Yeah, What the Foot, Gary Ward is phenomenal. If you're a runner, Helen Hall, even with your shoes on, she is another 
I would say uh, she's a, another colleague of ours who has studied under Gary Ward's tutelage as well. Uh, outside of that, Jill Miller has a wonderful book called The Role Model, where it's, it's more about the soft tissue work, foam rolling, and, and getting into the pelvic floor and deep within the, the core of the body. She's got some great advice in there. And yeah, there's, there's just tremendous amounts. I, if your listening audience is familiar with Perform Better, they are doing something remarkable this year. Uh, they have 67 presenters, each presenting one day at a time, online, completely free. These are some of the leaders in the strength conditioning and rehab world, and it is on performbetter.com. Every, every weekday, it will be at early morning hours that, uh, for, I think, th uh, honestly, it's, I think it's 3 a.m. London time, 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific time. So they can always check in with that and maybe get uh, recordings of it somewhere in the future. But there's some great presenters there. There's a tremendous amount of information. But uh, outside of the industry, I would look at anything dealing with gait mechanics and joint function and see if you can uh, just get a better understanding of truly how the human form moves through space before we start applying exercises onto it. Yeah, cool. And of course, we'll share links to all those. Um, in the show notes uh just kind of something kind of occurred in my head as you're talking then about the foot what what are your thoughts on getting people out of their trainers and, and working barefoot more is is does that have benefit i believe it does but i don't want to say yes everyone should be barefoot uh, the trainers can be a wonderful thing uh, and depending upon the foot and the person, it could be just the opposite. So oftentimes we take one concept and then it is taken beyond the extremes of what it was intended. So in fact, the, the barefoot movement that has occurred over the last 10 to 15 years is, has some very valiant points to it. And we do want the body to feel we've got somewhere between three to 7,000 nerve endings in the surface of our foot. And we want to feel the earth below it. We want to feel something that is not always man-made surfaces. But I have a facility here on the central coast of California that is considered shoe optional. So you can wear your, your trainers if you'd prefer, or you can take them off. Either way, that's fine. But it may be that I'm going to encourage you to take them off for some particular movements that are going to be on the lower impact scale. And then you may want to have a little bit more cushioning if we're going to get you to have a higher level of impact, especially it depends on if a person is accustomed to it. Like if you are used to running in bare feet, then there's no reason to necessarily stop. You just want, might want to train, train your body so that you have the most efficient mechanics to accommodate that. If it's a person who has always lived in their trainers, uh, taking them out of that trainer, would, I would go in small doses over time and build up in a progressive manner. I wouldn't just say, kick them off and we're gonna spend the next two hours having you do a whole bunch of drills on the pitch or in the room. So it, it has to come with a certain level of logic and reasoning and progression. Yeah, no, very sensible answer. The, the, the last thing you want is people just hearing it's good, chucking the trainers away and then, you know, getting loads of injuries from that. Um, it's, right. it's, you've, you've, it's like anything, you've got to slowly build up your, your ability to, to do more or tolerate more, I guess. Um, and, and lastly, Rocky, what, um, well, where can people learn more about yourself? Oh, 
Oh, I appreciate that. I, I don't want this turning into an infomercial, but I guess it, you could go to rockysnyder.com. That's S-N-Y-D-E-R. Uh, on social media, you can look me up through Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and so on. Uh, the, the book itself is going to be published in Europe very soon. It's in just mainly in, in the U.S., but uh, and with shipping costs, it's, it's not very... Uh, advantageous to to order the the paperback. I don't want people spending too much money on trying to get it. But the ebook is being released this summer, so that's a, another way of doing it. But Mascot Books is the publisher. And the the thing that I really I got from Helen Hall, one of my colleagues there, who wrote Even with Your Shoes On, she embedded these QR codes into her book with a few videos that you could basically scan your smartphone over the QR codes and instantly a video would pop up on your phone that you could find out a little bit more about whatever it is she wrote in there. And then once I learned of that, as I was writing this book, I thought, oh, that's brilliant. I'm going to do the same thing. So in, the, in this book, there are 150 various videos, many of which are going through each movement so that you're not just reading what you should do and want, seeing a picture, but hopefully the video will guide you into the proper mechanics, but also the concepts within the book too, I expand upon. So hopefully the information it expands beyond the print and gives somebody almost a pocket personal trainer or conditioning coach to utilize. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And of course we'll share links to that in the show notes as well, but uh, Rocky, just to, to wrap up, it's been great talking to you. Um, yeah. Like really like sounds like you're, you're onto something there. You've, you've got a really good philosophy and you're getting some great results for your clients. So thanks for sharing that with us. Um, oh, and, thank um, you. Thank and you hope, for having me. It's been oh, you're welcome. And hopefully it's kind of opened a few few coaches' eyes and, and even athletes to how they how they can approach things um with a bit more of an open mind, I guess, and and try and figure out what's going to improve rather than just following trends. And on that line, I am quite approachable. So if there are conditioning coaches out there that are listening that are intrigued or have questions or want to tell me that I'm full of it, either way, I'm I'm willing to take an email. Rocky at rockysfitnesscenter.com and you're welcome to shoot me off at a little note and and I love talking shop any day of the week. Oh, that's great. Of course we'll share that as well. Rocky, thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jamie. Me too. Great stuff. So thank you, Rocky, for taking the time to talk to us. Tons of great information there. And hopefully uh, it'll challenge people to to think about the way they approach things. It's not just, you know, bodybuilding, powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting thrown at, at rugby athletes. It's trying to improve movement, improve performance. Um, and there's any number of ways we can do that. So great information. Rocky, all the best for the future. And of course, guys, please subscribe to us and give us a five-star review on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, whatever you use for podcasts. And stay tuned. There are more podcasts on the way. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at rugbyrenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.